0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean
1: Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jason Crawford, a software engineer, startup founder, and historian and philosopher of human progress. In August, 2021, he launched a US-based nonprofit called Roots of Progress, which is dedicated to establishing what he calls a quote, new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. I should say that Jason's thinking and writing on the history of technology and the case for progress as a field of study has had a significant influence on me. I'd strongly encourage listeners to check out the Roots of Progress website to find a catalog of his essays on these topics. I'm grateful to speak with him about progress, including what it is, what we understand about it, and how a new philosophy of progress can help us achieve more of it. Jason, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. What got you interested in the idea of progress in the first place? How did you go from being a software engineer and startup founder to an historian and philosopher of progress?
2: It happened very organically. I began studying progress sort of as an intellectual hobby as a, and, and started writing a blog as a side project. And I became so fascinated with it and so obsessed with the, the topic and the question that I, I ended up making it my full-time focus and career. I, I mean, I really just began by realizing how much the story of human progress was a foundation of my entire worldview, just like the way I see the world and society and what's important. I mean, in my opinion, the the progress of the last few hundred years in science and technology and industry and living standards, you know, has completely transformed our lives well, I believe for the better. And, um, it's completely unprecedented. I mean, the the rates of economic growth and and, you know, progress in science and technology that we've seen over that period are just completely unprecedented in history. For thousands of years, things moved extremely slowly. And then, you know, only only recently were we able to actually expand production faster than we expand population, such that, you know, individuals can actually have better, better lives. and so if you if you look at that vast sweep of human history, you just look at that huge pattern, I think you 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 kind of have to see the last couple hundred years as what what's happened there is just one of the greatest things that's ever happened to humanity. And I think you just have to wonder, how did it happen? Like, what specifically were the steps? Why did it take so long to even begin? And how can we keep this going into the future? Because it seems like there's so many problems, you know, still remaining and so many things yet to be solved. And so I, I wanted to understand that just for myself. And then, um, you know, the more I got into it, the more that I realized that um, not everybody even agreed that this was necessarily a good thing or that we should keep it going or that it's not going fast enough. <laughs> Some people think, yes, you know, that it's going too fast or that it's even going in the wrong direction. And I also realized that my kind of perspective on this, like I said, really, really was a foundation uh, for my whole worldview and sort of what I think is important. When I think about what kind of society do we want, what kind of you know legal frameworks do we want, what kind and regulation, what kind of what do we want to be teaching in schools? What do we want? What should we see in art and entertainment? What kind of of person? What kind of accomplishments or character should we you know uphold as you know, something that we admire? All of those things, uh, a lot of it for me goes back to the story of progress and wanting to keep it going. And I think for other people, other people are very you know who, who don't have that same perspective are very focused on on different things. And it, and it just changes the whole way you see kind of what's important in society.
1: A major premise of your work is that progress is something that can be studied systematically. You wrote when Roots of Progress was established as a nonprofit organization in August 2021 that one of its key goals was to establish a quote, clearer understanding of the nature of progress, its causes, its value and importance, how we can manage its costs and risks, and ultimately how we can accelerate progress while ensuring that it's beneficial to humanity. Jason, let me ask you, why do you think it's important to study progress? And talk a bit about progress as a field of study, like, say, history or anthropology.
2: I don't think progress is exactly a separate field of study. I think there are a number of academic fields that are already obviously well-established that are very relevant. The closest would probably be economic history, but obviously economics broadly, history broadly, the history and philosophy of science, You know, perhaps uh, industrial and organizational psychology. All these different fields have some bearing. The term progress studies was coined by Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison in an article in The Atlantic a few years ago. And, you know, they were calling for, again, not exactly a new field, you know, not a, not a new department within the university, let's say, but something that was more cross-disciplinary and something that would, had more of a prescriptive bent rather than purely descriptive, right? So um, kind of as medicine is to biology, right? We don't just – we don't only want to understand progress. We also want to be able to to control it and to affect it and – Uh, like I said, ultimately to to accelerate it while also making sure to steer it in a good direction for humanity. So I think that's why, you know, progress needs and deserves to be studied. And what is needed, again, is not, you know, it's not as if we don't already have a ton of people doing economic history and so forth. But I think there is a certain synthesis that you need across all of those um, disciplines. And that's why, I mean, I myself, I'm not an academic. And what I do is not uh, anything that would be considered new by the standards of academia, I don't do primary research in that sense. But I read what the academics put out. And I read a lot of academic books and research papers and so forth, and 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 primary sources and a bunch of other things. And I try to synthesize and summarize for a general audience, for a non-academic audience. Put it all together. Uh, Paint a picture, show the narrative and explain, you know, what does this mean and give some sort of philosophical interpretation. And I think that's a crucial kind of layer that needs to happen in part just for the value of summary and synthesis itself. And in part to communicate what academia has found to a broader audience and again to to communicate its
1: significance. You and others like past Hub Dialogues guest Tyler Cowen believe that progress stalled sometime in the early 1970s. This may be a surprise to some listeners who who are accustomed to the idea that we're living in an age of rapid progress. Can you make your case, Jason? What are people missing? So first, we are living in an age of rapid progress. It's just not quite as rapid as it used to be.
2: So to be precise, to say that progress stalled might sound as if it went to zero certainly has not gone to zero. Progress is still faster now than at any time before the Industrial Revolution. However, I do think that it used to be even faster in the late 19th and early 20th to mid 20th century. Now I did not start out with this view. Actually I started out quite skeptical of that view and I came around to it just by studying the history of what actually happened. Here is the case as sort of clearly and concisely as I can make it. Consider the period, consider the 50 year period that ended about 100 years ago from 1870 to 1920 let's say. In this period we got by my count five major innovations. We got a we got electricity the whole electrical industry, lights, generators, motors, everything. Two, we got the internal combustion engine and the automobile and airplane, sort of based on that, right, and the rise of the oil industry. Three, we got a revolution in communications with things like the telephone and and radio. Four, there was a revolution in applied chemistry, which gave us things like the first synthetic fertilizers and plastics. And five, there was a revolution in public health that came from the germ theory and applying that to things like water sanitation and vaccines and so forth. Um, five major breakthroughs across virtually every area of industry. Okay, if you look over the last fifty years, so so same same dates, but add a hundred years and look from 1970 to 2020 roughly. What did we get? I would say we got one to two, depending on how generously you count sort of equivalent breakthroughs. One, obviously, is the com- you know computer uh, and internet revolution. That is that is huge, no doubt. And I don't want to downplay that or dismiss that at all. And then two, we've gotten a lot in in genetics. I would say, although it feels to me like we've sort of barely scratched the real you know potential of of that field. But we've gotten you know we got synthetic insulin, we got mRNA vaccines, we got a, and, and a whole bunch of things in between, right? But then you look at the other some of the other fields that were revolutionized in that previous period that I talked about. What has happened? What has fundamentally changed in manufacturing, construction, transportation, energy? We're do st- we still have roughly the same kind of power plants that we used to? We're flying in the same kind of jets, driving the same kind of cars, you know our, our factories and so forth, our construction. All of it looks basically the same, with to be sure some incremental improvement, which is 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 important and nothing to be sneezed at, but um just we we haven't had the kind of you know breakthrough revolutionary paradigm changing type of things that we've had in in other fields so i think just from that alone you can sort of see no matter how amazing you think the internet computing and the internet are it is amazing right i think i just don't think that stacks up to five, I would say, you know, revolutions of sort of equivalent magnitude, right? Or another way to look at it is like, yes, we had a revolution in information technology, but we had one of those back in the previous period also with telephone and radio, right? And then on top of that, we had everything else stacked up, electricity and internal combustion and chemicals and, you know, et cetera. And then I think you can, you know, you can see this in the numbers as well. If you look at statistics like GDP growth has been on a long-term kind of downward slide, TFP growth, you know, also. And so I, I think you see both a quantitative and a qualitative case that things have slowed down, you know, at least a little bit.
1: If listeners are persuaded by your compelling argument, it leads to the inevitable question, why? Why do you think progress has slowed over the past 50 years or so?
2: So I have three main hypotheses, and they are—they are not mutually exclusive. They all go together. Um, one is the the burden of regulation, which has which has grown enormously. Uh, a significant amount of it, you know, a, a lot of it uh, on the the rationale of safety and public health and so forth, but some of it implicitly motivated by wanting to slow down the the engine of material progress. Um, in particular, with you know, as the sort of environmentalist movement grew up in the '60s and '70s. They saw progress, and, and the whole counterculture sort of saw progress as perhaps the wrong goal in the first place and in many ways detracting from human life and well-being. And so there was an explicit desire to to, to slow things down and, you know, if not, if not outright, to stop it reverse them. And that is the, the actual goal of, 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 I think, or at least the spirit of, of some of this regulation. Not to mention that the way it has has grown has actually grown out of hand even you know, sort of far beyond what some of the initial regulation was even intended to be. Um, there's an excellent explainer of NEPA in the US, the National Environmental Protection Act, written by Eli Dorado that I recommend folks look up, where he explains that the mountains of paperwork that are now essentially required by NEPA were never even written into the law in the first place. They are a result of how the law has evolved in practice through the decades and through lawsuits and you know, and so on and so forth. Okay, that's hypothesis number one. Number two is the centralization and bureaucratization of, of research uh, and scientific and technological research, and, and particularly the funding and the way that we fund these things. In the US. now, and I think throughout a lot of the, the the world, we fund them largely through a small number of kind of centralized you know bureaucracies. And that is the kind of situation that can lead to a lot of consensus and groupthink. And hardening in, kind of locking in, you know, the the dead ends, if science goes down a, a, a wrong path, and that sort of status quo gets locked in because of the way the funding works, we can lose a lot of time because we didn't explore some, you know, less popular kind of potentially maverick sort of paradigm overturning type of ideas. An example of this from what I have read about it is um, Alzheimer's disease, which we have really stalled on progress. We've had many, many drugs and trials uh, that have not cured the disease and haven't even really shown very much effectiveness against its symptoms. And a good hypothesis for why this is, is that they've all kind of been based on this one hypothesis for how the disease works based on a certain kind of plaques known as amyloid plaques. And a lot of people are starting to think that this was actually wrong, but there is a story that for decades, it's been difficult to get funding if you were a researcher pursuing essentially any other hypothesis, because there was sort of a, you know, a group of 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 people who were kind of controlling the funding who were locked into a certain status quo. And then, in my hypothesis number three is just around kind of deeper cultural attitudes towards progress and a sort of overall cultural loss of enthusiasm for it. I think, you know, we as a culture have really lost a bold, ambitious vision for the future. We used to dream of moon bases and flying cars. And, uh, you know, today, the sort of most optimistic vision that, that you can muster out of anyone who's at all, you know, in the mainstream is a kind of, you know, a future in which we avoid disaster, like stop climate change and prevent pandemics. And, okay, so there's all these terrible things that people are worried about, and if we can just not have them. And maybe that's a bright future, but that's not actually a better future than today. It's just avoiding a worse one, right? You know, but what about longevity technology right that what about what about actually curing a disease what about extending our lifespans what about exploring space what about you know not just clean energy but actually much more cheap and abundant energy what about by the way reversing the you know so 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 one of the going back to that notion of stagnation over the last 50 years one of the metrics key metrics that has stagnated over the last 50 years is uh, per capita energy usage at least in the united states And if you ask most people, they don't actually, they don't even see this as a sign of stagnation. They see it as a sign that, oh, good, that rising energy usage was terrible and was uh, disastrous, and it's a good thing that we reined it in. But from my perspective, energy is absolutely fundamental to the economy and to creating material well being, and we should be using more of it. Obviously, it should be. You know, it should be sort of you know clean, abundant, reliable, cheap energy. But we should be using more energy on a per capita basis, and I think there's way more economic value to be created by doing so. Um, and so, it, but it's that kind of perspective that I think you know. A, a, so attitudes like this, I think, ultimately affect where the best talent and energy and resources go into. And over the last fifty years, it just has not been directed at a at a bold ambis- ambitious vision of a technological future.
1: One of Peter Thiel's arguments, uh, Jason, that resonates with me is that the free market critiques of excessive state intervention in the 1970s taken to their extreme became a case against agency in shaping the future. It it reminds me of Michael Boskin, George H.W. Bush's chair of the Council of Economic Advisers a- apocryphal line about computer chips and and potato chips how much is the philosophy of progress fundamentally about human agency and how can we channel human agency in a direction that doesn't result in the micromanagement of the economy
2: i think it is a lot about agency i think that is one of the absolutely key and fundamental concepts and one of the so one of the key questions about progress is how much of progress is in our control how much can we accelerate it how much can we steer it you know is it just sort of unfolding inexorably due to some kind of materialistic historical forces or is it something that we can guide and direct and so i have a deep belief in human agency both at the individual level and the social level i think we do have a significant amount of a command over our destiny and that we should exercise that and so i think that we can solve our problems and uh, and i think we can make the future better um, but again, that is not, I think, so much of a very popular view um, these days, and that's one of the things that I definitely want to, you know, to help bring back is a sense of agency. Again, both the individual and the and the societal level. Um, so, you asked, how do we how do we direct agency uh, without micromanaging, or um, what was the term you used?
1: Well, it seems to me that one of the challenges in the 1970s was that we took the notion of human agency to such an extent that we had central planners trying to manage the economy so that you know that's steering the notion of agency too far in one direction but i think the opposite in a way has happened that we've 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 resist we've recoiled so much from central planning that we now as you say subscribe to at some level subscribe to this notion that that progress unfolds due to spontaneous market forces if our economy produces computer chips or potato chips we really have no role in in making that determination. And in fact, if we try to, we'll probably screw it up. So it seems to me on one hand, we need to rediscover human agency. On the other hand, we need to constrain it such that we don't come to replace the functioning of the market with the hand of central planners.
2: Yeah, so um, so I am not a fan of central planning either morally or practically, and I do think that central planning was more or less the the the, was the approach that was in vogue in the early you know through mid twentieth century, especially around you know say nineteen thirties or so through uh you know thirties forties fifties were really the height of um what I've been referring to as technocracy, the idea that yes we're going to make progress progress will be driven by a technical elite who will kind of manage everything top down. Exactly. And and so that may have had some notion of collective agency, but it eliminated a lot of notion of individual agency. Uh, and I'm an individualist. And it also, I think, was part of... So So when we did get a kind of a societal pushback against that when the counterculture arose, you know, especially around the '60s, I think you know what what happened was a lot of people looked at that and they they looked at these very sort of techno optimist, perhaps, folks who were also very authoritarian, and they rejected the authoritarianism. Uh, and they also rejected the the notion that we were going to – that we even wanted progress, right? So they said, well, if this is progress, if this is what progress consists of, if it consists of individuals losing autonomy, then we don't want the authoritarianism and we don't want the progress. And so let's just throw all of it out. And so I think that was – there was this sort of false dichotomy between – um technological and industrial progress on the one hand and individualism and autonomy on the other hand and i think that's what, so one of the great tragedies of the 20th century is that things were set up that way such that if you wanted to you know push back against authoritarianism you were you were pushing back against progress as well and so i think um but i think this is a false dichotomy and i think um uh, you know certainly in the in the late 19th century we we had a much more sort of individualistic and laissez-faire world with a lot of progress in it one book I'll, I will refer people to from from a generation ago, but with new relevance today, is Virginia Postrel's book *The Future and Its Enemies*, where she talks about she draws the line sort of not between the, sort of the 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 technocrats and the and the reactionaries, but she actually puts them both on one side as what she calls stasisists, meaning people who want stasis, everything to stay the same. Versus the other camp is the dynamists, people who embrace change and want to. Um, and 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 you know want to create a better better future, not just sort of keep everything the same. And she actually points out, I think, very very astutely how the the technocrats and the reactionaries maybe and may have maybe come from different places, but end up with a lot of sympathy for each other and using each other's methods. Um, and that's how you get the bureaucracy of the state which is a very technocratic thing implementing a reactionary agenda in you know environmental regulation that seeks to say you know obstruct new you know construction of projects which incidentally as we're seeing today is even obstructing the construction of what you would think would be environmentally friendly projects like clean energy infrastructure right we can't even build that because you
0: know because of all the the obstructions that we've put in place you're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to you your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of the Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: Let me put another term on the table. In a July 2021 essay for the MIT Technology Review, you called yourself a, quote, solutionist. That represents a third way between complacency and defeatism. What is solutionism? And how does it translate into a public policy agenda to boost progress?
2: I use the term solutionism because I was getting tired of the debate between optimism and pessimism. And I wanted to define, draw the lines in a different way and and define some different terms. Um, One of the reasons I like the term agency, which you brought up earlier, is that I think it's more specific and clearer than, than optimism. Now, in a sense, I'm very sympathetic to optimism, but I think that the term optimism, it, it can mean a number of different things, and not all of them are good. Um, so there are different kinds of optimism, and, and different people have gotten to the same thing with different terms. Hannah Ritchie in a recent um, article for Vox, Paul Romer, The Economist, and, and a number of different people have talked about there's – I think Romer called it complacent optimism on one hand versus contingent optimism. Um, so there's a sort of optimism that says like, hey, everything's going to be great don't worry, we're on the right track, the future is bright, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And that kind of says or implies that we don't really have any major problems, or the problems that we have are, will be easy to solve, or, you know, just like it's smooth sailing from here on out. And the problem with that is that it's simply not always true. Sometimes we actually are facing big problems. Sometimes the future doesn't look bright. Sometimes we have huge challenges ahead. But the notion of agency says that, you know, whether or not we are facing a bright or a dark future, we can work to make it the best possible. If we are facing, you know, a bright future, great. Let's have expansive ambition. If we're facing a dark future, let's step up and fight. Let's fight for a better one. Right. Let's 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 tackle the challenges. Let's snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. And so, you know, that's 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 why I concentrate more on agency. the the term solutionism that I that I you know used in that piece for MIT Tech Review was about sort of a, the the false dichotomy of either you know on the complacent optimism side, just sort of ignoring the problems or downplaying it or glossing over and saying the problems don't exist, or on the other hand, having a defeatist sort of attitude, which not only do the problems exist, but also we will never solve them. Right? That's the 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 ultimate pessimist um, you know sort of argument. That's the non agency, the lack of agency. The argument And so solutionism is both acknowledging the reality of problems, but then also believing that we can solve them.
1: In that vein, is climate change, including calls for decarbonization and energy transition, a source of new progress or a threat to current progress?
2: I mean, it is a challenge that we need to tackle and that I think we should tackle in a way that leaves us off better. you know, li- leaves us better off than we were before. Um, so I think the there's a sort of i mean, the the ultimate defeatist attitude to climate change is the doomer attitude, which is just there's nothing we can do. We're all going to die or or we're all in for you know or, or a little more realistically, we're all in for some, you know, global disaster, no matter what we do. There's another very common attitude that I still consider to be somewhat defeatist, or maybe you'd call it retreatist, because I think it it represents a retreat, which is to say that the answer to climate change is is degrowth, right, or is to is to slow down or stop or even reverse economic growth, and to assemb- essentially just accept a lower standard of living or lower than we could otherwise achieve. And I think that that's uh, like I say that's a that is essentially accepting defeat or or kind of retreat, right? Because it's saying yeah we can't actually have all of the great things that that we wanted or that we um that we wanted to create for ourselves. We can't have a richer world, you know. People in poor countries can't have the the standard of living that 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 we have in wealthier countries. People in wealthier countries can't get better off our children are not going to live better lives than we do today right and that ultimately i think represents a defeat and so i think a you know a a, a more solutionist type of attitude would be to say okay this is a problem to solve with science and technology Let's figure out how to have energy that is, you know, that is clean as well as abundant and reliable and cheap. And let's have let's have more energy in the future while still, you know, controlling our emissions. Let's figure out ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere so that we can have some industrial processes that put carbon into the atmosphere, and we have others that that take it out. I mean, I think the 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 most you know sort of techno optimist um, long term vision would be we should essentially be able to control the climate of the earth. As you know, as well as we control the climate of the indoors, right? We should have a like a thermostat, but for the outside. Um, we should be able to control the composition of the atmosphere to the same precision, and that we control the composition of metallic alloys in our in our you know forges. You know, this is a, I think this is a very controversial attitude, and this gets you into things that are almost taboo, like geoengineering and, and so forth. But in my opinion, anything that's important to to humanity is something that ought to be under humanity's control and we don't yet today have the technology to uh in a fine-grained way or or in a you know a very um a very strong way control these things but we should and that's the that's the vision that we should work towards over the very long term
1: towards that goal should government policy prioritize incremental innovation or breakthrough innovation
2: i'm not sure that the government is in a good position to decide when we need how much of which right because we need both right in general we need we need Incremental innovation, because breakthroughs always start out not the best possible version of themselves, right? You know, the first telephones couldn't go long distance, you know, longer than a hundred some miles. Um, The first engines of any new type, whether it's steam engines or internal combustion are, are you know, inefficient and, you know, and, and not very high powered and so forth. Everything gets better through incremental innovation. That just takes decades of, you know, very unglamorous uh, sort of grunt work. But at the same time, any such pattern of incremental innovation eventually plateaus. There's only so far you can go in any one paradigm. And you get this sort of S-curve where things are sort of slow for a while while you're figuring out the basics. Then once you get some real breakthrough, there's a very fast, steep part of the curve where things are growing. And then as you've kind of figured out, you know, the matured the technology, things level off and and um and are flat again. And so it's kind of S-shaped. And the way that we get strong growth, exponential growth over long periods of time is by stacking those S-curves. As soon as one starts to level off, we kind of jump to the next paradigm, the next breakthrough, and and we're on the steep part of a different curve. So um you need both of them and you need them in kind of a, an alternating sequence. And I don't think that any, you know, to go back to the central planning, like, I don't think that any central planner is best positioned to figure out where we should, you know, which ones we should be putting effort into, you know, e- either dividing resources between breakthroughs and incremental or for that matter figuring out which incremental innovations or which breakthrough innovations are the most promising. I tend to think that to the extent that um To the extent that the government is going to be involved in sort of driving progress at all, it generally does so better through more demand pull rather than um, sort of supply push methods. You know, for instance, when there's something like, say, a vaccine that we need to get developed very rapidly, one of the things that the government can do is to, you know, guarantee um purchase of a certain number of doses right if someone can deliver it up to a certain standard that sort of thing can can be what is needed to then get private initiatives to sort of go out and take the risks and um you know during covid way that we got one of the ways that we got a vaccine extremely rapidly is that there were literally hundreds of independent vaccine projects going on in parallel And then also, by the way, there were hundreds more therapeutics uh, efforts, right, trying to get a cure. And so we had something like 500 different um, projects all going on, trying to find either a vaccine or a cure. And that's how like a small number of them succeeded very quickly. It wasn't because somebody up front picked the most promising, you know, kind of approach and then just like put all of our resources there. That could very easily. But hundreds of, of different teams and efforts trying in parallel gets us a solution very
1: quickly. In an April 2022 post, you make a compelling case that one of pessimism's strengths is that it sounds smart. Let me ask you a two-part question, Jason. First, can you outline your argument? And, and second, how can solutionists overcome this inherent advantage of pessimists? <laughs>
2: yeah, that's funny. I didn't call it a strength exactly, but yeah, you could you could see it that way. It's certainly an advantage. I it is true that pessimism sounds smart. This has been noted by many people. And what I realized when I wrote that post was one reason that it sounds smart is because so we talked about those those S curves and how and the current thing, whatever it is, always plateaus. It doesn't no no one technology or approach or or framework or anything has like infinite potential. So if you take if you just sort of if you're making a very sober, grounded forecast for the future, generally what you do is you don't assume any unseen breakthroughs coming out of left field. What you do is you just assume the current the current thing and and you kind of follow it out. And whenever you do that. What you get is you say, well, it's going to plateau at a certain point. It can't get beyond this uh, sort of limit, right? And so any such wise, sober, grounded predictions are necessarily kind of pessimistic because they they show uh, you know everything leveling off. The only way to have an optimistic prediction is to say, well, look, at some point, somebody's going to come up with some kind of breakthrough. I don't know who. I don't know what. I don't know when. I don't know where it's going to come from. But something will come along. That is going to just change everything and give us a bunch of new opportunities. Now, that sounds super, I mean, like, where are you getting that from? How are you justifying that, right? It doesn't sound like the kind of wise, sober thing that you can just, like, really strongly justify. And the only way that you can justify it is to zoom out to the 50,000-foot level and to look at a very broad swath of history and to say, well... This is what has actually happened over and over and over again, right? Uh, and so that's why optimism sounds a little naive, a little wild-eyed perhaps, but I think in the broad pattern of history is, is absolutely justified and is one of the reasons why these very long, um, you know, longer timescales are crucial to look at and to understand.
1: In a July 2021 post, you argued that Winston Churchill was a futurist who had something of a philosophy of progress. What's your argument? Why does he belong to you and the progress crowd?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I said that slightly tongue in cheek, but it's true that he wrote one article that really was uh, a work of futurism. It was called 50 Years Hence, and various versions of it ran in a few different magazines. I think it was in the 30s. I can't remember exactly when. And he was surprisingly prescient. He looked at all kinds of, you know, across all kinds of technologies. He was talking about um, the potential for fusion energy. He, so it must not have been the '30s then. It must have been probably uh, after the war, right? And he was talking about uh, lab-grown meat and how you know he said we'll look back and we'll we'll think it was sort of silly to grow an entire chicken just to eat the meat of it, right? We can just grow the meat. And I can't remember. Was he talking about artificial wombs, I think? And you know, there was there's all sorts of things that he was you know, you wouldn't think we you know people would necessarily be talking about. We're still talking about those things, some of them as as futuristic technologies, yeah, but uh, again, so he came from an era. In fact, anybody who was born in the nineteenth century and who grew up and sort of formed their worldview before the onset of World War One had a kind of optimism and just like positive outlook on the future and view of technology and economic growth that is hard for us to understand
1: and imagine today. Just just in parentheses, Jason, Canada's second major prime minister, Sir Wilfrid Lauria, who served from 1896 to 1911, famously said in 1905 that the 20th century would belong to Canada, which reflects, I think, that degree of of ambition and audaciousness that marked. Uh, I love it. The era. Uh, we're we're a hundred years later, and we're still. Maybe waiting. you guys can grab the twenty first century. It's <laughs> for, still up. It's still up for grabs. Right? First, precisely. Uh, let me ask you a penultimate question. Um, do you think your message of progress can be a successful political message? Are there any politicians in the United States or elsewhere, really, that you would lay claim to as a member of the progress crowd? And if not, why not? I think it can be successful, but it
2: might take some time. And I think that, well, let me say this. I think that what is needed is not only a political campaign. It is a broader and deeper cultural campaign. The message of progress needs to get out through through journalism, through education, in art and entertainment. We need sci-fi that is portraying the kind of future that we actually want to live in rather than a series of dystopias. We need uh, for scientists and inventors to be held up as cultural heroes. There should be major Hollywood biopics that, you know, that aren't just about their love life, by the way, you know, (laughs) but that are about their actual process of of discovery and invention, about the things that they did and how that impacted the world. There's so many great stories to be told that Hollywood, in my opinion, is largely ignoring. This stuff ought to be taught in school. Um. You know, um, Stephen Johnson, who's one of the top uh, writers on, on technology and the history of technology, pointed out that uh, he he was looking through a, um, I think, a textbook on American history, high school textbook on American history. And he searched through the text, and there were, you know, the word labor appeared like hundreds of times. And um, I think the word vaccines and antibiotics appeared zero times. Vaccines and antibiotics are one of the biggest stories of the 20th century, right? Not just in the U.S., but in the world and that stuff just doesn't appear in the textbooks the the history class tends to be about politics and war and empire and 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 you know religion and so forth but the story of of science and technology and industry is a huge part of human history and it just it just isn't taught in school and it it absolutely ought to be um you know it, it ought to be a required subject so these are the sorts of things we need we need it in in education journalism art entertainment it needs to be throughout um the culture in order to give the the sort of grassroots support and the tailwinds for
1: for political reform in that vein, final question: What does success look like for you at Roots of Progress? First, I would say it looks like
2: in you know ten or more years from now that rest studies is a real established genre that we have um, shelves and shelves full of books on it. Just like if you walk into a bookstore store today, you can find shelves full of books on environmental studies. We should have a you know an equivalent sort of section of progress studies and more broadly it is just that kind of cultural change that i talked about where the conversation in in the world and in and in politics becomes you know, less about identity and redistribution and more back focused on um, scientific, technological, and economic progress. Ultimately, I want people to regain that bold, ambitious vision for the future. I want us to be dreaming of the moon bases and the flying cars and, you know, living until, you know, age 300 and, and curing all disease and and having, you know, fusion energy that lets us 10x energy per capita and and all of those uh you know, uh, really, really ambitious, exciting things that could transform the world once again, as it has already been transformed multiple times.
1: Well, that strikes me as a compelling vision of the future. And this has been a compelling conversation. Jason Crawford, founder of the U.S.-based nonprofit Roots of Progress. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. That was a great conversation. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.